0: Comfort, take your claim to a life without shame There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom on the other side Hi, friends, it's
1: Miranda here to introduce an interview that was a huge honor for me and my co-host Catherine Robb. Dr. Judith Herman is one of the most respected writers and researchers on the subject of trauma because due to her careful research and her capacity for empathy, I think she truly understands what it means to be a survivor and to live in that aftermath. You may know Dr. Herman from her famous book, Trauma and Recovery, written in 1992, which is still relevant and referenced regularly today. Or you might have come across some of her famous quotes, which get hundreds of likes when I post them on social media, including this one. It is very tempting to take the side of the perpetrator. All the perpetrator asks is that the bystander do nothing. He appeals to the universal desire to see, hear, and speak no evil. The victim, on the contrary, asks the bystander to share the burden of pain. The victim demands action, engagement, and remembering. See what I mean? She gets right to the truth of what we know in our bones. One thing I want to mention before the interview, right from the top of this conversation, we talk about the research and how it shows that despite common assumptions, survivors of interpersonal trauma are generally not interested in vengeance or collecting money from the offender. We actually tend to be focused on stopping perpetrators from hurting other people and want to be believed, validated, and supported by the community. That being said, I feel the need to say that if you are a trauma survivor, it is okay to feel whatever you feel. If someone did you harm, It's okay to want them to get their due, whether that's jail time or losing a court case or being held to account by the community. It is also okay to desire and seek restitution in the form of money. After all, that is what the justice system offers victims. We don't accuse car crash victims of being greedy for wanting their medical bills covered by the driver who hit them. And survivors have plenty of monetary loss from therapy bills and lost wages, just to name a few bottom line as I often say feelings are not actions and they are not right or wrong feelings just are they tend to change sometimes even day to day and evolve over time but whatever we feel whether we fall in line with these research findings or not there should be no judgment from other people or from ourselves so that's my little soapbox and I'm so excited to share this interview with you Hello, and welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacquiana. I am a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. I'm joined by my sometime co-host and friend, Katherine Robb. Catherine is an attorney, writer, survivor, and the executive director of Child U.S. Advocacy, which fights for legislation to protect children and prevent child abuse and neglect. Hi, Catherine. It's nice to be here again. (laughs) Dr. Judith Herman is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and one of America's most influential psychiatrists who has focused on the understanding and treatment of incest and traumatic stress. She was the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies and is a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Herman's most well-known book to date is Trauma and Recovery, which the New York Times called, quote, one of the most important psychiatric works since Freud, unquote. Her new book, Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice, picks up where trauma and recovery left off. It is available for sale on Tuesday, March 14th, the day this episode drops. Dr. Herman, first of all, I wanna say we're so grateful to you for sharing your time and attention with us today, but also for the body of work that you have given us. We are both survivors, we are both advocates, and reading this book feels like recognition and feeling deeply understood Instead of chronically minimized and misunderstood, you articulate and demonstrate some really simple truths, which are, for me, that survivors most of all want the truth validated, that we want accountability, and we want to prevent the offender from hurting other people. We're not interested in vengeance, And also that we need and deserve our communities to hear us, to see our victimization as a social problem and not just an individual one. So welcome, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well,
2: thank you for having me.
1: Yes, well, you just summed up the book uh, beautifully.
2: And it was written basically, I would say by and for survivors. I mean, in the sense that when I wrote about Trauma and Recovery 30 years ago, it was based on my work with survivors of mostly gender-based violence. But at the uh, program I co-founded at Cambridge Hospital called the Victims of Violence Program, we saw all kinds of trauma. We saw both what's called political trauma. We had a special program for refugees who were seeking political asylum, and we collaborated with legal services to support their asylum applications. Um, So we still have that kind of trauma, but most of our patients were women and some men, about 20% were men who survived childhood abuse and neglect and or domestic violence, sexual harassment, sexual trafficking, the array of Mm -hmm you know, what one might call patriarchal violence. Yes. And at the time, I also took part in a study group because the diagnosis of PTSD was so new, you know, it only became, quote unquote, a recognized real diagnosis in the American Psychiatrics Diagnostic Manual in 1980. And that was mostly the credit for that, mostly came from Vietnam veterans Mm -hmm. who came back from the war and said, we're home safely, but our minds are still in Vietnam. And we still yeah. look for danger everywhere. So we're not okay. So I was part of a study group that was really put together by my colleague, Bessel van der Kolk, And he pulled together people who were working with trauma, whether it was with veterans or with burn victims or with abused kids or with rape victims and survivors of intimate partner violence. And so kind of from hearing from all these different types of population, um, oh, and not to mention political prisoners and children of Holocaust survivors and you name it, um, people who had been prisoners of war. And what I realized then was trauma is trauma, whether it's supposedly a private matter as for women and kids, or whether it's publicly acknowledged, if you've been to war. Um, I think we've then. come a
1: long way since then, right? It's, it's yes such a Yes no. I mean, it's word. much okay. more,
2: there's much more consciousness raising and much more awareness now. And that's really, uh, my argument in travel and recovery was that you need a political movement and a social movement to have travel recognized. Because otherwise, yes. people really don't want to know about it. They'd much rather, you know, forgive and forget that bygones be bygones. Anyway, it's over. You know, Let it go. It's deal. Yeah. I was
3: thinking when I read the Body Keeps the Score a while ago, what a great piece of work, of course, right?
0: Uh-huh. But when I
3: read it, I just remember thinking there was so much about Vietnam vets in it. Uh-huh. And I thought, I thought about gender, quite frankly, uh-huh. I thought about are Vietnam vets more believable because they were by and large men. You know, yes, absolutely. Just remember it really struck me, even though he did speak about other types of survivors of trauma as well. But primarily there was a lot of focus on Vietnam vets. And I, I felt as if, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that that sort of brought it to the forefront understanding post traumatic stress. And I just thought it was so interesting because incest and sexual abuse in families has been going on for hundreds of years. And I Thousands. just thought. Yeah, thousands of years. And I thought, you know, I'm always thinking about the gender component. And I'm wondering what you think about that. And not just him, but all great thinkers and writers and academia. I just thought that it was really what brought it to the forefront was the words and pain and trauma of men. Interesting.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, war is a public event. You can't deny yeah. that war happens. Right, 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 right. Um so. You're starting from a place of at least that amount of public acknowledgement.
3: It's also Um, honorable. You know, soldiers are honorable. Soldiers are
2: valorized, except actually soldiers with PTSD, because for a long time in the history, they were considered cowards and they were shamed and blamed for their symptoms and often punished because men should be fearless and should never be in any distress about mm-hmm. what they have done and seen and suffered. So what right. changed? That changed really with the Vietnam veterans against the war. Okay. Uh, yeah? yeah.
1: Yeah. You well, do recognize in trauma and recovery that cultural acceptance of trauma comes and goes and it depends on the political atmosphere.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it took an anti-war movement to mm-hmm. really validate the suffering of soldiers. I mean, it had been described after previous world wars and so on, but it, it didn't get the same amount of recognition. So, you know, where is violence against women and children is supposed to be a private matter, mm-hmm. and it's kept secret, and most kids don't tell, you know, and mm-hmm. victims are so shamed and so blamed that you know, most don't dare to speak up. Uh, certainly, while it's going on. So it took the women's movement, I think, mm-hmm. to make that possible. And basically, the reason I've done the work I've done is because I was lucky enough to come of age in the second wave of women's liberation, and I was in a consciousness raising group when I began my residency in 1970. And guess what? My first two patients on the inpatient service, where I began my training, were women who had been hospitalized after making suicide attempts, serious suicide attempts. And guess what? Both of them had histories of father-daughter incest. I guess it's not that rare after all. Yes, I'm thinking, huh? You know, I thought women this was supposed to, and you know, my supervisors were saying, Oh, well, you know, silly naive resident, don't you know that women fantasize about this? Uh, Um, and I said, No, I think so. That was the whole Freudian uh, cover. Freud discovered this in the 19th century, and then he he thought he'd discovered the source of the Nile. And then when his (laughs) colleagues shunned him and didn't believe him for a second, he backtracked. Because he didn't want to go there if, you know, if he wasn't going to get credit for it. Wow. Wow. Talk about the ultimate cover up. Well, uh, you know, that's why I say you need a movement. Mm. He was brilliant and ambitious and he was right the first time. But if his colleagues were going to boycott him, Mm -hmm. he
1: wasn't going to keep investigating Mm -hmm. What a near miss to have elevated the voices of victims and survivors and women and children.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the other person who made the same discovery at the same time was Pierre Janet in France. Mm -hmm. And he never recanted. He continued to write about trauma and really has done some, did some of the foundational work on trauma that still reads like contemporary literature. Mm-hmm. But nobody paid any attention to him. Mm-hmm. So you need you need a movement anyway. yeah, and I've been in this consciousness raising group, and this was a pretty, you know, privileged, highly educated all-white women. and there were, you know, those sexual assault stories and the domestic violence and the harassment. Guess what? Even with the white middle class women, This was happening a lot. Mm -hmm. And so when my patients disclosed to me, I believed them. And Mm -hmm. one thing led to another. So when I wrote about trauma and recovery, because the other thing was when I believed them and I gave them empathic support instead of disbelieving them and shaming them and blaming Mm them, you know, what's the matter? What's wrong with you? They got better. Mm. surprise. Mm -hmm. So in trauma and recovery, when it became clear that, you know what, trauma is trauma and recovery, you know, there are certain stages you have to establish a good relational connection and safety. And then you move on to grieving the trauma and Mm -hmm. reconstructing the story. and, And then you move into the world in a more proactive way. And The recovery stages idea seemed to hold up quite well, both cross-culturally and with different populations. And that's when I began thinking about, well, but if, just to come back to the point you made initially, if trauma is not just a personal matter, but it's a social problem and a political problem, Mm. then wouldn't recovery also require Some social justice. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Wouldn't
2: it require some public restitution and acknowledgement?
1: So logical and yet radical at the same time. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. And guess what? If So then when I interviewed
2: 30 survivors for the book, that's what they said.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
3: You know, I talk to survivors all over the country in the legislative work I do, Doctor. And first of all, the first thing I tell survivors is, I believe you.
2: Yeah. And you're not alone. Yeah.
3: But what I hear most frequently is not that I want this bill to pass because I want to get money from my abuser or the institution that abused me. It's always the same statement, almost verbatim. Mm-hmm. I just don't want this to happen to anyone else.
2: Yeah.
3: Right? That's what I hear all the time. The way some people think, especially the lawmakers I deal with about what justice looks like
2: yeah. is
3: very different than what survivors so desperately need.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. It's not money, it's not punishment. I mean, a little money wouldn't hurt. <laughs> um, especially, you know, some survivors who've had Lots of medical bills and yes, needing lots of
1: therapy. I'm You're sure. talking to two survivors who um, initiated lawsuits.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of the people I interviewed who initiated civil lawsuits, they knew they were never going to see any money,
0: yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah, but they wanted the truth out there and they wanted an acknowledgement and they wanted corrective action.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: One of the people I spoke with is a professor at Brown named Ross Chite, and he actually has a legal background, a mm-hmm. political science profession. And he'd been abused by the director of the San Francisco Boys Choir yes. at a summer camp. Mm-hmm. And apparently the story. there were quite a few boys who'd been abused there. He was a serial perpetrator. And basically, he skipped town. So the judgment went to him by default. He also sued the choir because they'd come, you know, they knew about it, and they'd they look, they it. looked the other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, their lawyers were shocked because they kept offering more money, and he kept saying, "No, what I want is a public acknowledgement mm-hmm. and a public apology, mm-hmm. and I want you to notify all the other boys that were at that summer camp." It was too late, by the way, for criminal action. Mm-hmm. A couple of other now adult survivors had come forward, and they took it to the DA. but you know, the statute of limitations had expired, or he would have gone the criminal. Mm-hmm. And so he actually did get the public acknowledgement and apology. and he said a lot of lawyers he knew said, but lawyers don't do this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They want the money. (laughs) They want a non-disclosure
3: agreement. You know, they'll give you
2: any amount of money if you sign an NDA. And that's not what he wanted. By the way, he also said, and I think this was very enlightening to me. He said, first of all, I'm a married, white, heterosexual, highly educated professional. And it was still a total ordeal a mm-hmm. civil lawsuit.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said that his wife said that she thought civil suits were designed for men. <laughs> because he said, you know, he could say to the other side, do you want <laughs> hardball? I'll give you hardball. He knew that people would drag it out till the morning of the trial, you know. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, yep. But he said it was still very emotionally taxing.
3: So I'm in the middle of a suit right now. So I'm very aware and I'm highly educated, intelligent white woman, and I know the law really well. And it's really hard for me. So I always think to myself, I I get why maybe less fortunate people than I have such a hard time because the system is really not built for victims. So I get it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah you lay out in the book, how that reflects the larger culture and the lack of equality in our culture that exists and how that plays out in the justice system and how it really does not serve victims to get what we need. But on the other hand, you do lay out a real detailed vision Mm -hmm. of how to achieve that for victims. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Maybe especially the
3: restorative justice piece I find really interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think restorative
2: justice certainly is inspiring in many ways because it envisions a process that is consensus-based rather than Mm -hmm. adversarial Mm -hmm. and is focused on repairing the harm that was done and hopefully preventing future harm, rather than punishment. So that is a totally different philosophical approach from our justice system. And there are models in which it's been implemented that are quite interesting in terms of just outcome measures like the victim's satisfaction, Mm -hmm. as well as the defendants so they call the defendant the harm doer right Mm -hmm. Um, and the the models involve basically the survivor testifying to a, a bunch of community representatives but rather than sort of randomly chosen jurors supervised by a judge you have people that are important to the victim and the Harm doer invited, and usually presided over by a, a person who's trained in leading the restorative process. And the survivor gives her testimony and says what she wants. And then the harm doer is expected to acknowledge everything and to offer what is needed to make amends. Mm. And then all the other people sort of chime in to develop a plan, Mm -hmm. a plan of restitution, basically. Um, The problem is there's no fact-finding mechanism for restorative justice. So if the harm doer is not willing to acknowledge what he's done and isn't sorry, (laughs) um, then there's no way to proceed. Right. Now, the people who argue in favor of restorative justice say, well, an adversarial system gives the defendant every incentive to deny everything. Yep. Yes. Um, if you had a consensus-based system, maybe more people would be willing to participate. It does seem, though, to the extent that you need an incentive for the the harm doer to acknowledge what he's done. I think you do need the criminal courts as backup because you have to figure
1: out how to do that. Otherwise what's in it for him. You You need a carrot and a stick. Yeah, exactly. Well, I
3: think it's also especially difficult when we think about institutional failures like the Catholic Church and Boy Scouts of America and certain institutions like Michigan State and Larry Nassar and, you know, all of that, you know, the criminal justice system doesn't work. It just is completely ineffective. I actually would argue that it's also ineffective for even individual perpetrators, Um, because it's just the burden of proof is higher. There's some limits on discovery. And I think the piece, if we get back to restorative justice, is in reading about that in your book, it just struck me that so many survivors, I know personally myself, Miranda and I have talked about this, Mm -hmm. is it's, you know, the abuse is about abuse of power, right? It's an imbalance of power. It's your devalued all of that. Right. And I feel like in a civil system, at least the victim plaintiff has yes. some power, <laughs> you yes. know, the, the power of subpoena, the power to hold their perpetrator accountable. There's some decision of that decision making. Yeah. And maybe that's more effective for those perpetrators that are not willing to be fully accountable or to apologize or to acknowledge, perhaps those perpetrators are more, it's more suitable in a civil system. Meaning rather than take a restorative justice route, you know, which sounds in many ways a little bit like there's some mediation in there. There feels like there's a component of mediation.
2: Well, they make a big distinction Between mediation and restorative Mm -hmm. justice, the the people who advance the idea. Precisely because in mediation, it's a dispute between two people with kind of equal responsibility Mm. for the quarrel. You know, roommates, college roommates who have a fight about how their dorm room is supposed to be. (laughs) You, You know, where is... In restorative justice there is a responsible person and a person who is harmed mm-hmm. and the burden is on the responsible person to restore membership in the wider community that John Braithwaite who's one of the sort of leading philosophers of restorative justice talks about reintegrative shaming that the community needs to let the perpetrator know, harm do, know how outraged they are Mm -hmm. about his behavior. And only when he admits and apologizes and agrees to make amends is he sort of readmitted, Mm -hmm. reintegrated into the, the larger society. So the burden of shame is lifted from the victim and placed where it belongs. And
1: I would argue, and I think you make this point, that in order for a community to be moral, they have a responsibility to take that stance.
2: Absolutely. And that's what I hear from so many survivors. They don't want a reconciliation with the perpetrator, they'd rather just never see him again, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What they want is a reconciliation and an apology from the people who were the bystanders, who didn't do it, you know, who didn't take you know. who
1: May I read a quote? Enabled
2: this you? guy? Sure.
1: I pulled this because it meant a lot to me. You say, for those who are the most directly victimized, the complicity and silence of bystanders feels like a profound betrayal, for this is what isolates them and abandons them to their fates. Survivors can perhaps accept the fact that some people are predators or psychopaths who seek absolute power. But what about all those who collaborate, the enablers, the apologists, those who profit from the subjection of others? Often survivors will feel the bitterness of these betrayals more deeply even than the direct harm inflicted by perpetrators. And that's at the heart of the work that I do and my story. Yeah, yeah. That was clear from those
2: first two incest cases. The question was, where was my mother?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Uh where is she now? Is the second question, I think, because I think that most people would love to have some kind of restorative justice, some healing, some reconciliation, if the other parties would come to the table honestly and be willing to look at the truth.
2: Yes. Yeah. There's a wonderful book. came out in 2021 by a woman named Rosie McMahon called Fortunate Daughter. She's an incest survivor. Her father was alcoholic and very violent toward everybody in the family, you know, her mom and her siblings. She's the oldest girl and he singled her out for the sexual abuse. Later, when she was already, you know, a young adult, and by that time, he was out of the house and Safety had been established. the mom had finally been able to get a restraining order and you know he had a heart attack, and the whole family rallied around him in the ICU and he actually survived and that was hitting bottom for him. He was so grateful that, in spite of everything he'd done when he was at death's door, they were there for him and He got into recovery, he got sober, he went into offender treatment, and prepared by Rosie's therapist, they did a family confrontation where Rosie read them basically her victim impact statement to her parents. Wow. Um, And both parents just sobbed Mm -hmm. and apologized and said how wrong they had been her father for what he did and her mother for basically looking the other way. And I mean, she was also battered and she was too frightened to do anything. But, you know, that doesn't matter to a kid. Mm. Uh, And so she didn't make any excuses. She just said she was really, really sorry. And they had a reconciliation. And Rosie wrote a wonderful book about it.
3: Wow. Wow. I'd love your insights on... I know Miranda and I are both very interested in this. You know, If we look at the data, well, it's like one in five girls will be sexually assaulted before they're 18, about one in 13 to one in 20 boys, depending on the data you look at, right? And then we also have other data that, geez, as high as 96% of all perpetrators are men, you know? And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the obvious gender piece here. Also, another piece would just that most sexual abuse of children happens within the family. It was my oldest brother that sexually assaulted me for eight years. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean,
2: most perpetrators are either family members or friends, right? uh, Well known to the family, you know, right? um, Right. Not strangers, and that's true for boys and girls, by the way. And most people who abuse boys are men. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Well, this is patriarchy. Mm -hmm. You have, (laughs) you know, welcome to patriarchy when you have a a dominant group and a subordinate group and have impunity for crimes against the subordinate group. Some people are going to abuse their power one way or another. Mm -hmm. The good news is most men don't rape women, abuse children, um, you know, by sex. From sex traffickers, so why are disproportionate victims of police violence people of color? Yes, it yeah.
1: all
2: has to do with abuse of power, yeah
3: so what is it about older brothers in a family? sibling abuses, you know, we're starting to understand how common it is. yeah, what is it about the customs, practices, beliefs that exist in families that make older brothers, more prone to abuse, much more prone to abuse their younger sisters, and sometimes their younger brothers, Mm -hmm. um, than older sisters.
2: Same thing. The socialization into patriarchy begins at birth. Right. Not before. One of the people I interviewed for the book is this amazing attorney named Winona Ward, who started an advocacy. She became an attorney, putting herself through college and, and law school And she founded this group called Have Justice Will Travel to take legal services out on the back roads of Vermont, like the one she grew up on. Mm -hmm. And she described her family of origin as a kingdom where her father was the king Mm -hmm. and everybody submitted. There were, I think, six kids and all girls except the one brother and he abused all his younger sisters, except Winona, who was kind of his pal. He taught her how to hunt when she was nine so they could get food. I mean, you know, that mm. was the kind of family she grew up in. If they got a deer, it lasted them most of the winter. And nobody said boo about it until by the time she was grown and she was an attorney. And she discovered that now he would moved on to his nieces, mm. the daughters of his younger sisters, she got them together and they pressed criminal charges. And she said he was the heir to the kingdom. That was his entitlement.
1: And that gets communicated and reinforced within the family, like you said, from birth in myriad different ways, right? Every day. Yeah. I think there's also just a lot of subtle messages that
3: children receive every single day, you know, from day one, right? Maybe even before they're born about what it means to be a girl and what it means to be a boy and who's got power and who has value and who doesn't. I remember I grew up in a, a very big Irish Catholic family with eight siblings, and it was my oldest brother that abused me and my sister and thinking about not even having words for my genitalia. Like it was very clear that everyone talked about the boys had the penis and it was something that was talked about. I never heard the word vulva, vagina, clitoris, like never. Even though I think my parents believed that their daughters could do what boys could do, because I think they did. They were a, a little bit more progressive. There was so much messaging that made me so less powerful and less valued and certainly around sex, right? I mean, boys had all the power. They were rewarded
2: for their sexual prowess. I'll tell you two stories from back in the day. When I was in medical school, girls were 10% of the class. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to be extremely grateful and groveling constantly about how, (laughs) how how lucky, lucky you were.
1: Right? To be let yeah. in at all. And I'm sure you worked twice as hard, as hard. and were well, yeah, at least course. just as smart, um, if not doubly. And,
2: you know, the anatomy lectures were all illustrated with playboy porn and stuff. I thought mean, <laughs> that was cool. But um, the gynecology textbook described the clitoris as a vestigial organ that had no actual function. <laughs> Oh my God!
1: <laughs> They're revealing something about
0: their abilities. I think,
1: <laughs> and, oh. and when
2: our bodies ourselves came out, which was I think sixty nine or seventy, round right in there. Yep. It started as a thirty five cent pamphlet put out by New England Free Press, and you know it was all about get to know your body. Oh yeah, I'm sure we each had a copy. Yeah. yeah. The most radical thing in there was, it taught you how to masturbate.
1: Oh <laughs> Women's pleasure. What? 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 Wait, we
3: wait. We thought that thing didn't matter. We thought- this is subversive.
2: <laughs> this is power. Yeah. Yeah. When right. Simon and Schuster then published it and it became a worldwide bestseller, they left that part out. Yeah,
1: yeah, I don't remember that part. Yeah. That wasn't <laughs> and I thing. read every word of that book. Yeah. Backwards yeah. and forwards. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, that that was a bridge too far for them.
1: Wow, that's just crazy. Yeah. But right? have, like has that changed? Do you think that they would publish that today?
2: In well, a mainstream it book no. Like I mean, um doesn't sound as though hookup sex is very female pleasure oriented. Um, it doesn't
1: at all, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah,
2: certainly pornography is not. I
1: mean, right. that's how exactly. most
2: kids get their sex education. So, right? Uh, no, I think female pleasure is still taboo in a lot of the world.
3: It's I definitely, I think, on social media there are quite a few groups that just do really, really great work about female pleasure and also. Mm-hmm women that feel uncomfortable or shamed by their labias and uh, right, right, right. my daughters have shared some great great stuff and i'm like oh, damn, damn damn i
2: wish i had this when i was a teenager yeah. you know i mean uh, the fact that women are still encouraged to shave their yeah yeah I mean, well they have to be clean they,
3: well they have to be clean like pretty little girls right soft and clean it is yeah. disturbing yeah it is very disturbing That's just part of the messaging that I was
2: talking about earlier. God forbid you should speak up and ask for what you want. I mean, aren't you put there on earth for, for the enjoyment of men?
1: Right, right. I think I read a statistic. I think it was in your book that girls who got sex education that helped them role play saying no were something like half as likely to be sexually assaulted. I have Uh, a daughter in college right now. I jumped online to see where I could find videos and things. Now, naturally, it's directing me toward abstinence education. But I'm wondering, where do we find this? And why why can't we rely on the research and expose all students to this in high school and college?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, because God forbid they should be told actual facts about sex. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very culturally divisive issue. I mean, is. certainly there's a lot more information out there for girls and women than there was when I was coming up, because there could hardly be less, but... You learned about your period, and that was kind of it, right?
3: And that was, you know, disgusting. <laughs> you know, so yeah. So I think there's this double bind that girls are in if they are interested and open about sex, they're sluts, yeah. uh, and if they're not, they're prudes. It, you, yeah. You, no, you, you can't, can't win. Right. You can't win. The messaging is just everywhere
2: on that. The data are correct. That and actually, a colleague of mine late sociologist Pauline Bart did a study back in the 70s about women who managed to escape a rape attempt. And it turned out that women who trusted their gut ran away or fought back, did much better. And the ones who were able to do that were women who did sports, especially any kind of contact sport. And women who, and this is the positive side of having older brothers, if they had a lot of brothers and were used to rough and tumble play.
1: That, yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. Yeah. They, that's
2: practice. They yeah. But if they were ladylike, they were in big trouble. Yeah.
3: And that's the way they're socialized to be. Yeah. Set up for trouble. Yeah. Easy pickings. Yes, exactly.
1: Mm, yeah. And they're high-heeled shoes. That's what attractiveness is, right? Yeah. Um, so you can't oh, yes, walk.
2: You can't. Foot, foot fetishism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like boots. are they, um, they can't really run away, can they? That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So if we could talk a little bit more about the repair part okay. of the book, how important is justice to survivors of sexual violence, Dr. Herman?
2: Well, I think it's important to everybody if by justice you mean feeling like a valued part of a community and treated fairly.
1: Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. It's everything. Yeah.
3: yeah, it is everything. Mm-hmm.
1: Is offender rehabilitation possible? Who knows? Mm-hmm. It's
2: never really been tried. Uh, it's not since interesting. Most offenders get away with it don't suffer any consequences the only models we have of say offender treatment rehabilitation are for that very small minority that gets court ordered into treatment mostly now that's maybe one to two percent of offenders Mm -hmm. for sexual violence i mean that's probably a high estimate probably um for domestic violence it's a little higher but still you know, most survivors never see a court, a judge, let alone a judge who's going to say, you better get your behind into treatment, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we,
3: we have two justices on the Supreme Court that got away with it. Oh, yeah. I right? exactly. <laughs> yes.
2: you know? Not only got away with it, but were enraged right. when their entitlement was questioned. Exactly. Um, and have since distinguished themselves uh, mm-hmm. their respect for women's rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know what we have are these studies of mostly treatment with incarcerated sex offenders, with domestic violence offenders. It's usually outpatient treatment, but court mandated. And there's enough data, I think, on the work with domestic violence offenders to make it clear that they have to mean it It has to be well supervised. If the guy doesn't follow through, there have to be consequences. And it has to be, you know, a year or more. Yes. There's a model that does have a social analysis of domestic violence as an abuse of power, not a, you know, not a guy losing it and anger management, forget it. These guys manage their anger just fine. They don't beat up their bosses. Exactly. (laughs) They know what they're doing. They
1: know where (laughs) that power is flowing from. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: But um, what's called the Duluth model sees domestic violence as an abuse of power. And the violence is only one of the methods of coercive control. Yes. And it's group treatment in which the guys are really required to Take each other on with their rationalizations and their excuses. And, but she did this and she did that, and the dinner wasn't on the table when I got home. And, you know, and over time, there are some promising outcome data with treatment using that model. But does that apply to the whole range of offenders? Who knows? We don't know. Most of them never get into treatment. And with sex offenders, it's really a minute fraction that ever get treatment. And the data are pretty equivocal. Now, you could argue that the people who actually get incarcerated are much more likely to be poor, Mm -hmm. minority, Mm -hmm. uh, compromised in educationally, Mm -hmm. possibly mentally, Mm -hmm. you know, you're going to see a lot more social and psychological pathology than you see in the fine young men, in the, you know, sports teams and fraternities in college that are planning rape parties. So basically, we just don't know.
1: And it seems to me when we look at how to influence offenders after the fact, again, this is why we need a community around them that holds them accountable and has expectations Mm -hmm. and also a society and a culture that does not perpetuate this system of dominance and misogyny and sexism. You know, it's a big task against us. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, you know, where your optimism lies going forward. Hmm. Well, <laughs> a long time ago,
2: back in the 70s, I read a pamphlet by a British psychologist named Juliet Mitchell. And she called women's liberation the longest revolution. Mm. And what she meant by that, you know, she was talking to an audience on the left that sort of saw the woman problem was going to be solved once we had socialism. And, you know, once we put an end to capitalism, we wouldn't have war and exploitation and subordination of women as soon as the working class was liberated. And she argued that actually, no, the working classes are oppressed in one domain, that of production. Women are oppressed in four domains, Mm -hmm. production, reproduction, sex, and child rearing or family. Mm -hmm. And she said that a women's revolution required changes in all four. If you had progress in one, but, regression and another they canceled each other out wow yeah you know, or they could cancel each other out
1: so how we doing what how are we
2: doing how are we doing well <laughs> women uh professionals and true uh hosting podcasts and that sort <laughs> of thing i mean that, integration of the workforce has, you know, I was 10% of my medical school class. I was one of 10. Now, medical students are 50-50. By the time you get to see your faculty, of course, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. between 10 and 20% women, but the higher you go in the pyramid, Mm -hmm. the fewer women. But, you know, we now have, what, 25 women in the U.S. Senate? That's better Mm -hmm. than Mm-hmm. 1% to 25% ain't bad. Mm-hmm. So in reproduction, well, we've gone backwards recently. Yes. Um, on the other hand, it's a fight. Mm-hmm. And it's a battle. It's not the end of the fight. True. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there we got too complacent because we relied on the law to solve the problem rather than the amount of grassroots organizing that I think is needed. That's going to have to gear up again. Mm -hmm. Sex, well, we talked about that. Yeah. And and yes and no. Mm -hmm. And child rearing, I would say we have made no progress whatsoever. No paid family leave, no accessible child care. I do think um, there's been a little bit of progress on housework. A little,
1: but just a little, I think. From
2: zero Mm -hmm. to... You know, maybe women do 90% of the housework now instead of 100.
3: Professor Kate Mann at Cornell. Yeah. I love her. She's amazing. Her work is so great. In her book, Entitlement, Entitled, Entitled. Entitled. yeah, Entitled, yeah. One of the chapters is Entitlement to Domestic Labor or something like that. But she addresses the unbelievable inequities that continue to go on in the home in terms of child rearing and domestic work. So I would agree. We do have a long way to go. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'll never forget the way that everyone swooned when we brought our first child home and my husband changed the diaper. And you oh, would have thought he was I Superman. Man <laughs> I mean, I just gave birth, but whatever. <laughs> right.
3: Yeah, we definitely have some work to do.
1: <laughs> if I could ask you a question about yourself and your career, Dr. Herman. I'm curious, when you look back on your work with people who have been marginalized and traumatized and being the author of such truly influential and important books and research, how does it feel to reflect back and and what comes to your mind? Well,
2: I mean, I feel very privileged, Hmm. you know, to have kind of come of age when I did and to have been part of this movement and have had wonderful colleagues and to build things with. And yeah, it's been very rewarding. So yes, I feel lucky.
3: Well, we're lucky to have
1: you. We really are. We really are. And this book, some of the other aspects that I love about it are that it lays out all kinds of different possibilities based on research and shows you the pros and the cons about how to try and achieve justice mm-hmm. and repair. Mm-hmm. And it's also just really well written. I mean, I, I find that wonderful writing kind of disappears and just reveals the information mm-hmm. to you in a really clear and concise and understandable way and moves you. Um, and I just want to recommend this book to everyone.
2: Well, thank you. That's very kind feedback. I should credit here both my editor at Basic Books, Lara Heimert, and my agent, Elias Altman, who both worked with me and making sure that what I said was clear and understandable and jargon-free and all those good things. So
1: yeah. Well, I think it's yeah. a really important book, and it's going to matter to a lot of people, and it matters a lot to me. So, yeah. Miranda, a- ask me the question that you mentioned earlier. Oh my gosh. Um. Oh yes, I asked mm-hmm. Catherine if it was okay to bring up that when she. When we received our advanced copies and she started reading the book, she was about 60 pages in and she told me she couldn't stop crying. And I, I'd love to hear why that is, Catherine.
3: So first of all, you should know, Doctor, that I'm not a crier mm-hmm. for starters. And I think this is a really important thing that we should share with the listeners, is that there was just this deep truth and light to your words. Just as a survivor, it just struck me as this validation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was so validating and pure and true, and cut through all the crap. You know what I mean? And just (laughs) got right to it. Exactly. This this woman, you obviously get what survivors. I almost felt like I had a personal connection with you, and that is a powerful thing to feel in a book. So I wanted Miranda to ask the question that she had asked me, if she could ask me, (laughs) because I wanted to thank you.
2: Well, that's wonderful feedback to receive. I think, you know, that's what comes of working with so many survivors over the years, you know, is you do hope that you get it after a while. So I'm glad you felt that I did. Well, you listened,
1: and that was... Yeah. Really, one of the major themes behind the book is listen to survivors.
2: Absolutely. Listen yeah. to survivors. They will tell you what's what. Yes.
1: Yeah. yes. All right. Well, we're going to let you go. Thank you okay. so much again for your generosity, for your time. Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you for listening. Check out the Truth and Consequences website to find all our episodes, photos, and show notes. That's truth, the letter N, consequences.com. If you're interested in information and support about the aftermath of sexual abuse and assault, visit my website, secondwound.com, where you can also sign up for my blog, which often includes posts about my podcast guests. Please support the podcast with a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even easier, you can tell your friends and follow Truth and Consequences and The Second Wound on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on episodes and past guests. Thank you for listening and for all the support, everyone. And always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast, including our beautiful theme song, is composed and performed by a friend of the show, Maddie Morris, and produced by Pete Ord of Haystack Records. Thank you, Adam, for all the technical support and for being my biggest fan.
0: There is comfort. Take your claim to a life without shame There are people who understand Here they're reaching out their hands And there is joy that will bloom on the other side that we are of survival You have a right to the way you feel You have a right to a space where you can heal Cause there is joy that will bloom on the other side